All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to have you with me here at the Digital Cathedral on this Sunday morning. And this is Sunday morning, the 19th of January. Hard to believe we're almost through the first month of 2020. Good to have you with me today. Hope you've had a wonderful week and you're ready to get into this book of Galatians and uh, do a little bit of study. I want to begin today at 2 Peter chapter 3. If you have your Bible or you want to follow along this morning, we'll, we're going to end up over in Galatians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. But I, I just wanted to, to get your mind thinking this morning in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the last verse of this uh, of 2 Peter. And, and Peter says this. He said, but we need to grow in grace. You know, there is, there is a growth to grace, and I hope that as we come through the books of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, that you experience a lot of growth. So Paul said, or Peter said, grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he ends the book up and he says, to him be the glory both now and forevermore. So two things that Peter said that we need to do. We need to grow in grace and we need to grow in knowledge. And it seems to me that the more revelation knowledge we get, the more revelation we receive, the more we actually grow in grace and we grow in understanding. And uh, uh, the further we get into grace and the more knowledge we get of the Lord Jesus Christ, the further religion moves back in our rearview mirror. We actually lose sight of it after a little while. It seems like <clears throat> I've been out of that pull of religion so long that I, it, it, there's not even an, a pull anymore to it. We've... We've went into the promised land, we're possessing it, and we're finding some wonderful freedom. So I just encourage you this morning to continue to grow in grace and knowledge, knowing that the more knowledge you get, the more revelation you receive, the deeper the grace rabbit hole runs, and the further religion is put behind you, which is a good position to be in. All right, last, last Sunday morning, we made the journey from religion to revelation, and I, I, I enjoyed that journey. It's a journey most of us all here at the Digital Cathedral have made. Uh, it can be a liberating journey. Uh, once you see grace and you feel that, that ton of weight come off of your shoulders that maybe you carried for years and years like I did, of performance and the anxiety of feeling like you needed to meet some kind of standard uh, for God to approve you, for God to bless you, for you to be accepted by him. It can be a liberating journey to get that, that monkey off of your back. Really, it's bigger than a monkey, isn't it? It's more like a gorilla. So we get that gorilla off our back, and it can be a liberating trip. On the other hand, it can also be a little bit bumpy. And I found that that journey from, uh, from religion to revelation can be a, a little bit um, tough at times. It can be filled with questions. Especially when you first start it, you begin to question yourself a little bit. You question the wisdom, if you're hearing right, if you're missing it. I remember the first couple of years, uh, back in 2003, 2004, when I began to get a hold of this message, there'd be times that I would just set myself down and, and ask myself, are you, are you crazy? Is there something wrong with you? Because nobody else at that time that I had any contact with was teaching the things that uh, a lot more people are teaching and accepting as truth today. So that ride was a little bit, little bit bumpy. But the good news is if you stay with it, and here's where maybe some of you are at this morning at the Digital Cathedral. If you stay with it, there comes a time in your life when you actually sense that you have stepped over the line. You have become, the message has become you. You begin to own the message, and we're going to talk a little bit about Paul owning the message this morning and the journey that he made 
from the revelation to actually owning the message. But there is that time when you, when you begin to get confidence in what you believe, you're able to articulate it, you're able to discuss it with somebody. That's uh, a real awkward time when you first come in to an understanding of the finished work of the cross and you understand it inside, but you have a hard time expressing it with the words of your mouth to other people. And if, that's, if you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. And the best thing you can do is just let that message settle in. Because there will come a time that you, that you move over, that you progress over, and you get confidence from the spirit of truth that what you're doing uh, is right on the money. And, and it's, well, it's well endorsed by him. So at that point, you never look back. And you never, never have an interest in going back. And things begin to come alive for you. And at that point, you begin to see yourself different. Your perception of other people changes. The way you look at the Father in heaven changes. It's an entirely different lens and perspective that we look through as we come through this journey. So when we read Galatians, we find that Paul really came through a lot of the same things that we've come through or maybe are still coming through on some level because we're all in a different place here at the, at the cathedral. So I want to pick it up this morning in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Paul spent three years in the wilderness after he got the encounter with Jesus. He spent three years in the wilderness. Then he started out ministering just a little bit here and there. And he matured in what he was doing for about 14 years. And we discover that as we pick it up in Galatians chapter 2. What I want to do is read the first 10 verses. And that's all we're going to cover this morning. So obviously then next week we'll take verse 11 to the end of the chapter. But I want to take the first 10 verses this morning. Let me read it and then we'll go back and we'll go through it verse by verse and see what we can discover. Then I want to bring these 10 verses into our world today and show you what we deal with that Paul dealt with also. Because there's, there's some great parallels here. All right, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1. Reading down to verse 10. Now notice in verse 1, then after 14 years, after 14 years, I went back up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with us. And I went up by revelation, or because of revelation, the revelation I had to communicate to them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might have run the race in vain. And we're going to get into this, so if it seems a little bit confusing, don't worry about it. So Paul said, I'm, I'm going to go up, he's 14 years now, he's been been maturing in the message, he goes back up and he's going to lay out his case before those what he calls of reputation, which was the big three, the three amigos, Peter, James, and John. Verse 3, yet not even Titus who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren, secretly, we're going to come back to that, secretly brought in, which came in by stealth to spy out our liberty that we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us back into bondage. Verse 5, to whom we didn't yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Verse 6, but from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism to any man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. I love that about Paul. Verse 7, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcision was to Peter, 
And Jesus wrought effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised. It also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, which is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me, me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles. This is important, that we should go to the Gentiles and they would go to the circumcised or go to the Jews. They desired that we should remember the poor, the very thing which we were ourselves eager to do. Now there's a lot packed into those 10 verses that went on in this uh, second chapter of Galatians that Paul is writing to these Christians in southern Turkey, uh, what he's relaying to them. Verse 1, I want you to notice that, that 14 years really stands out to me. That uh, let, me, let me just trace back real quick the, the journey that Paul made. Paul, Paul had an encounter on the Damascus Road with Jesus. You know, everything starts with an encounter, doesn't it? Everything starts when you have an encounter with the Lord. You, you had an encounter with grace himself. And that started the journey that you're on today. And many of you had to come out of, out of your evangelical church. You had to come out of the traditional church you were, were in because of the encounter and the ensuing revelation that happened because of the encounter. Everything starts with an encounter. So Paul had a, an encounter on the Damascus Road. His chain, name changed from Saul to Paul. And immediately after that encounter, he went into the desert for three years. Then after three years, he began to circulate a little bit among the churches, among the believers. Um, he had a quick meeting with Peter, spent 15 days with Peter, then... That's all we see of him or hear from him. That's all he writes about until this verse, first verse of chapter 2 says that in 14 years later, he went up to see Peter, James, and John. Now, I think you have to think a little bit about what happened to Paul during that 14-year. It was kind of a hiatus. Actually, it was kind of a, a sabbatical. What happened during that 14 years? Well, I would imagine that Paul went through the things that you and I have gone through. First of all, he was probably getting his beliefs straight, getting his theology straight, getting the revelation nailed down. He was flushing out all of the religion that had built up into his life. And remember, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. By his own testimony, he was the creme de la creme, highly educated. He was the young man that was on the rise in Judaism, destined for great things within that religious faith when he had the encounter. So I'm sure that it took him some time to root out all of the religion uh, that he had deeply entrenched within himself. And then grace began to take root. And it went from the revelation that he had because of the encounter. And this is what I was talking about just at the start of the teaching this morning. It went from just the revelation or the encounter. It went to where he actually began to own the message. It was a time of, of preparation. Some of, the, some of the things that he experienced, you've experienced. It takes, it takes time to own the truth, right? It take, from the time that you first began to see the truth, maybe to the comfort level you have with it today, it has taken you a period of, of years or months or whatever your development period has been. So the father's planning vision in Paul during this 14 years. He's probably letting him know everything that he's going to encounter, some of the, the, the pushback he's going to get with the message. Because remember now, this message that Paul had was completely uh, revolutionary to anything anybody had ever heard. This was not a message that was being taught anywhere. This was fresh, hot off the press, 
directly communicated from Jesus to Paul, the message that Paul was to take to the Gentiles. So this was something brand new. So he didn't have any books to read. He didn't have YouTube. He didn't have a, a place that he could go to, to have lunch with anybody to talk this thing out. It was just him. And so I think a lot of truth that he shares in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians was birthed during that 14-year that period period and everything moved from concept it moved from theory it moved down into daily experience and probably during that 14 years he was living it out he was living this message out he was beginning to manifest this grace that he would teach so maturity comes that way maturity comes as we submit to the process and I can't emphasize that too much because there is a process that goes on in life and you have to learn to submit to the process the Father invests a lot in us as sons and daughters. And those of us that have seen this new uh, transformation that's taking place on the planet, he's investing a lot of effort into bringing us into a place of manifestation as sons. So it took Paul 14 years. Now let, let's read on, verse 2. Verse 2, he said, And I went up by revelation and, communi and communicated to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run, have run this race in vain. What's, what's Paul saying there? In verse 2, he's saying, look, because of the revelation that I have and this message that has never been taught, it's brand new. Uh, Peter, James, and John have never heard it before. He said, I, I, I'm firmly secured in it, and I feel compelled to, to deliver it to the Gentiles, but I want to go up and I want to talk to Peter, James, and John because they are the, th the three main cogs in the wheel after the ascension of Jesus in Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John were pretty much running the show. So Paul knows, this, it's actually a good political move that Paul went. He said, I, I want to go up and talk to them because if they, <clears throat> if I don't give them a firsthand understanding of what I'm doing, they're going to negate it. They're going to kryptonite it. They're going to they're poo-poo the message that I'm teaching. And he said, their influence is so strong. Their influence is great enough that I would be running in vain. That's the way Paul, Paul put it. So he said, I want to go to these guys and lay it out for them. <clears throat> I want to explain to them. Let them ask any questions. I want them to become familiar with what I'm, I'm, I'm teaching. So he went to, to Peter, James, and John basically to get an endorsement. So while he's up there, verse 3, he said, Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was not compelled to be circumcised. But he said, however, in verse 4, this occurred because of false brethren who secretly came in. See, when he first went up, he was, teach he was telling everybody what, what, he, what he had discovered, the truth. And so there were people that came in privately, he says, to spy them out, to listen to what they were saying, with the idea that they wanted to bring them back into bondage. They were wanting to get Paul and Barnabas and Titus back under the influence of the law. Because the believers at that point were Jewish. <clears throat> and what they had done is they had, they had kind of a hybrid thing going on that, that, that wove the law and grace together. And we're going to come back to that in a few minutes because that, that's what's going on today in the church. So he said, these guys came in and checked us out. And what they heard drove them crazy. And so they tried to, to bring us back in, into bondage again. 
But verse 5, Paul said, we didn't yield ourselves to that kind of nonsense for even an hour. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. We didn't, we didn't give into it because we wanted to be able to present the truth to you. <clears throat> verse 6 says, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it doesn't make any difference to me. I like that. Paul's saying, these people, I don't care what, what position they had. It didn't really impress me. It didn't move me. I didn't come off what I was teaching, not even for an hour. He said, because God shows no personal favoritism to man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. In other words, these guys that came in to spy them out, to try to bring them back, they didn't, make, they didn't, they didn't move Paul at all. Uh, he didn't listen to it at all. He, he didn't subject himself to it at all. So Paul's getting pushed back from religion and religious people. That's, that's, that's the message of verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. And that pushback came in the form of mixture teachers that were wanting to add the law to Jesus. And we talked about that in the first chapter of Galatians, that Paul faced that everywhere that he went. They were willing to say, yeah, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus died for us. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, but here's your part of the deal. You need to be circumcised. You need to obey the law. You need to, to uh, discipline yourself up. Jesus did a lot for you. Yeah, okay, that's true. But now you need to do something for him. The gospel to them be, was still transactional. It was a transactional gospel. You, it was kind of a quid pro quo. God says, yeah, I'll save you. I'll bless you if you do this first for me. If you keep the law, if you're obedient, if, you're, you, know, if you keep all the statutes and, and everything that Moses taught, you do that, then I will do this for you. I'll save you. I'll keep you. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll bless you. I'll do all those things. So Paul in verse 6 goes into the big three. And he begins to talk to them. <clears throat> And he, he says, they, they really didn't add anything to my message. And I think Paul is, is keeping his break from headquarters pretty clear there. Paul, Paul is not, not coming on board with who they are. He's not moving in their direction. And in verse 7, it finally dawns on the big three what's going on. So in verse 7, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, for the Gentiles had been committed to me in the same way that the gospel to the Jews had been committed to Peter. For he, Jesus, worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised or to the Jews in the same way that he's working in me for the uncircumcised or the Gentiles. And when, Pete, and when James, uh, Paul, Peter, and John, verse 9 who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave to us, they put the stamp on it and said, we approve. So you go to the Gentiles, Paul, and we are going to the Jews. So there's a working out of message. And at that point, you know, Peter, James, and John are probably thinking, look, let these Gentiles in. This is not probably going to last. Let Paul do his thing. Uh, we're direct, we're apostles uh, that knew, walked with Jesus. So we're, we're carrying the, 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 the gospel with the law attached to it. And we'll go into the Jews and begin to teach them. So Peter, James, and John went to the Jews with a mixture. And this is important. When you read Peter, James, and John, you have to know they're coming from a perspective of a mixture. And Paul went, of course, then to the Gentiles. 
Now, Peter, James, and John were ministering to a transitional generation. Peter, James, and John, in going to the Jews, were, were, were teaching people that were living on both sides of the cross. But many of them, this was only, this was only 15, 20 years after the, the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus that Paul's writing this. So it's, it's pretty fresh on everybody's mind. So Peter, James, and John are going to people that remember religion before the cross and the laws and the rules. And now after the cross, it's a different ball game. The, the, the toughest group, even to this day, to bring into grace and, and, and the full gospel are those religionists that are steeped as the Jews were in tradition, who are steeped in uh, uh, denominational laws, steeped in, um, you know, do's and don'ts, and which was really the position where the Jews were in, and many are still in that position today. So what, what Peter, James, and John were attempting to do, I think, uh, at that point, was to take the people that had lived uh, pre-cross, and now they were teaching about Jesus post-cross, they were trying to transition them in an easy way, all right? It's a little bit like Joseph Prince. You know, Joseph Prince is a, is a uh, bridge for many people that are coming out of religion into grace. Now, there is some mixture of law in what Joseph Prince teaches, and I would tell Joseph Prince that if I met him in person. He teaches, for example, the necessity of the tithe. That's an Old Testament law principle. Okay, and there's some other things which we don't really need to get into, but I want to make the point that Peter, James, and John were teaching a transitional generation. So when you read Peter, James, and John, you need to understand the perspective that they were writing from. Let me, let me give you just a couple of examples. Here's, here's a scripture, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. This, this is often used uh, for us today. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. It's familiar. Every evangelical knows 1 John 1, 9. That if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is saying, if we confess, then he forgives. Now, how did those people living pre-cross, how were their sins forgiven? They were forgiven through an animal sacrifice in the temple. So when John begins to transition them, he says, look, you, you, you don't have to make an animal sacrifice anymore. If you want to make a sacrifice for sin, confess your sin. If you need to clear your conscience, confess your sin, knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive your sin. Now, there is a work that John puts in there, the confession of sin to be forgiven of sin. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at what Paul says about that in just a second. But when you read 1 John, you have to know who John is writing to. John is writing to Jews that lived before the cross. He's trying to move them now away from the animal sacrifice, away from the traditions that they had always followed. So he's easing them into this by saying, look, if you, if you really feel that you need to do something to get your sins forgiven, don't, don't, kill, uh, don't kill a bull, confess. Just tell God your sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive him. Now look what James said. Let me show you what, a, 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 a little thing about James here. James chapter 2 and verse 14. He says, what does it profit a man, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? 
Wow. Well, you and I would say, yeah. Down to verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Do you, do you see the mixture in that? Do you, do you see the different message in that? All right, verse 24. He goes on to say, you see that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. Now these verses I'm reading have been curveballs to Christians right up to this day. And it's still taught in most evangelical churches that we need to have a work of some kind. Believing, confessing, uh, receiving. There's all kind of work that we put into this. Verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, in both of those, and we won't run any more scriptures down, but you can run through a lot of what post-cross, what Peter, James, and John taught were a mixture. And Paul, when he comes to the Galatians, is saying, look, this mixture needs to be totally out. You, don't, you were never under the law, Galatians. Gentiles, you were never under the law. This has nothing to do with you. So what did Paul teach? Let's look at what Paul taught in Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. This is so much different than what John and James just said. Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So what's, what's Paul saying? Paul is saying that, no, wait a minute. You, you're not justified by your works. You're justified by faith apart from works. What did James say? James said, no, it, you, faith without works is dead. Now, what happens in church today is the pastor reads a little bit from James and tells you the works you must do. Then on the other hand, he comes back over to Romans and says, no, you're justified by faith apart from works. So which is it? Which is it? If you don't understand audience in context, if you did not go through Unhook, the book series that I just finished a little, a couple, three weeks ago, you need to go look at it on YouTube. Unhook the book. I'll teach you how to rightly divide the Word of God. And I'm t telling you this morning that Peter, James, and John, when you read those books, understand who they're writing to and the context and the time period that they were writing to, who, who is saying what to who? So Paul is our guy. Paul, Paul is the theologian. All right, now the rest of the time, rest of the time, I want to bring us back to verses 4 and 5, and I want to bring it into today's world. Let's come back to verse 4 and 5. This is an experience that Paul had. Galatians chapter 2. I was in Romans, wasn't I? Let me get over to Galatians chapter 2, and let's just look at verse 4 and 5 here. Then let's bring it into today's world. He said, and this occurred because of, of false brethren secretly brought in, they came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. That's a person of grace looks at this mixed message that John and Peter uh, were teaching, or James, James and John, the verses we just looked at, and for you and me would say, man, having faith with works in order to be accepted is, is bondage again. It's taking us back to don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't run with folks that do in order to be accepted by God. So it's, it's bringing us back into some kind of bondage again. Paul said, we didn't put up with that. But from those who seem to be something, in, 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 in verse 5, 
But when we did not, we didn't yield ourselves to them for an hour. In other words, we didn't listen to it. And you need to learn to not listen to mixture either. You need to discern when something has a, a works, law, do attached to it. And don't, Paul says, look, we didn't sub, submit to it for an hour. We didn't put up with it one bit. Now, we, we have the same groups that are pulling us also back today that want to steal our grace, that want to steal our liberty from us and put us back into bondage. And you're going to encounter these two groups. Most of, matter of fact, most of you, probably 95% of you here at the Digital Cathedral came out of one of these two groups. There's two groups of Judaizers today. I remember Judaizers, Paul called them Judaizers because they took Jesus plus works in order to be saved. There's two groups of Judaizers today. They're called Calvinists and Armenians. They are the modern day Judaizers. Both would have you believe that Jesus alone is not enough. Both would have you believe that the Father's acceptance of you is conditioned, not unconditional. Both of them would have you believe that Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 6 that says there is one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in all, they would tell you that that does not apply. It's not applicable to all of us. That that doesn't mean all does not mean all. That he is not the father of all. Now just stay with me. Now you need to listen closely because like I said, most all of you that are watching today, watching, in the, digi watching the digital cathedral, have come out of one of these two groups, out of Arminianism or Calvinism, especially Arminianism. If you are... Uh, Pentecostal, charismatic, word of faith background, assembly of God, most likely then you've come out of an Armenian background. Let me just, let me just real quick, on those two groups, let me just thumbnail them for you. Let's start, let me start with Calvinism. Calvinism was founded by John Calvin in the 1500s, and there are five basic tenets to Calvinism, with, and they, they have the acronym of a TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Right? Calvinism believes in total depravity which means that all of us were born depraved, sinful, separated from God. Uh, in fact, they believe that God hates us in that condition, but we were born totally depraved. U stands for unconditional election. There are some that God chose for heaven, some God chose for hell, and there's nothing you can do about your election. When God formed you, put you on the earth, he knew already, formed you and predestined you to either go to heaven or go to hell. L stands for limited atonement. The atonement only is good for those that he predestined to go to heaven. It doesn't reach to those that he predestined to go to hell. I stands for irresistible grace in TULIP. For those that have been predestined to go to heaven, you will be saved. God will make sure you are. His grace is irresistible. And P stands for the perseverance of the saints. So once you have prayed the magic prayer, you're one of the elect, you're in the group, you can never come out of the group. And Calvinists use verses... Uh, out of context, for example, um, let, me, let me just give you two. Romans chapter 9 and verse 13. Romans chapter 9 and verse 13. I'm just going to give you one for time's sake, just so you get an idea. Romans chapter 9 and verse 13. It says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So a Calvinist will, see, will say, see right there, God loved Jacob 
and hated Esau. So he predestined Jacob to be loved and predestined Esau to be hated. And if you come back to verses like in, in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 12, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So God would say, or Calvinists would say that God predestined Pharaoh to be in that position and God was the one that hardened his heart. And so that was, that was what he was predestined to be was Pharaoh that, whose heart was hardened so that God's plan could go forward. Everything is predicated to a Calvinist on predestination. You're either predestined to heaven or you're predestined to hell. Now, how do you know if you're predestined to heaven? Well, there's an easy way to know what Cal Calvinists would say. If you prayed the magic prayer, then you were the one that was predestined to heaven. If you never prayed the magic prayer, then you are predestined to hell. It's just that simple. Because grace is irresistible. God will set it up to where you for sure will pray the prayer and, and uh, get yourself right with God. Presbyterians are Calvinists. There are a lot of fundamentalist Baptist churches that are, are hardcore Calvinists. Generally, Calvinists are KJV people only, King James Version. That is, that is the Word of God, that is the Bible, and there is no other. And generally, they're very literalist in their interpretation. They believe the Scriptures are inerrant, and they're extremely hard on sin. In fact, a Calvinist will tell you that God is so hard on sin that he detests and hates the sinner. A Calvinist will tell you that those that are predestined for hell, when they are burning in hell, God gets glory from that. That God, God can't stand to look at you. You're detestable in his sight. If you want to listen to a Calvinist, go over to YouTube and listen to John Piper. He's a, he's a hard, hardcore Calvinist. And you'll pick up the hate that God has for the human race, except for those that are predestined to heaven, that pray the prayer. He, he loves them, but not everybody else. All right, so that's what a Calvinist is. So if you happen to sit in a fundamentalist Baptist church, Presbyterian church, another Calvinist church, and generally Calvinists are, you know, they soft pedal this a little bit. I'm, I'm giving it to you straight up without ice and water this morning. I'm trying to confront you with, you know, what the hardcore fact is. Because if you're in that, it's, it's, a, Judaizing, it's a Judaizing message to the grace of God. Because it adds a stipulation to Jesus. It's not a Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus plus you're predestined and you're praying the prayer. Armenians, on the other hand, were actually formed as a, as a reaction to Calvinism by James Arminius, also in the 1500s. Armenian was, Armenianism was popularized by, by John Wesley. Methodists, Assembly of God, Nazarenes, Charismatics, most Pentecostals are Armenians. Now, here's, here's what an Armenian would believe. They would say, yes, man was born with a fallen nature, but he retains his free will. All right? He has a free will. He's fallen. He's sinful. He's separated from God, but he has a free will. And out of that fallen, depraved, sinful, separated nature, unable to make you know, any choices in life that are good, you're supposed to be able to make a free will decision to accept Jesus. 
Even though they tell you how jacked up you are and how messed up you are, out of that, you're supposed to be able to somehow recover and make a good choice. That man has to choose by choice what Jesus did on the cross or else Jesus' death means nothing to you if you don't accept it. So what an Armenian would say is that Jesus only came for those who accept him. He did not come for everybody. And if you don't decide, if you don't make that decision, an Armenian would say, based on your free will decision not to decide, that your eternal destiny would be to burn in hell forever. So if you don't make a good choice in the 60, 70, 80 years that you live, even if you've heard a perverted gospel and you don't want any part of it, that that's too bad, you're going to hell. If you don't make the choice, if you make the choice, now listen to this, and Armenians would say, if you made the choice, but you sin after you made the choice, you lose your salvation, and you have to remake the choice again. You need to repent and be born again, again. Now, I was born again, 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 and again. My againer got worn out. So did yours if you were an Armenian because you got born again every time there was a revival or, or the pastor could come up with something that was going on in your life, something you weren't doing, some place of failure that you had to repent for. So I'm, I'm giving you this quick thumbnail because I want you to understand the way people believe and they think because you're going to encounter these people. You're going to encounter Calvinists and Armenians that are going to come just like the, 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 the Judaizers that Paul encountered that came in to try to pollute the, the Galatians after Paul preached the grace message and they entered into freedom. There were people that followed up that said, no, wait a minute, you guys, it's not, that, it's not all that good. You need to do some things. <clears throat> so a Calvinist would say God is, is supreme. He's all-powerful. He loves some, but he hates others. And they will use scriptures like Romans chapter 9, verse 13, Jacob he loved Esau, I hated he chooses some to be saved, and they will be saved. There's no other plan that will happen. And those that he doesn't predestine, that don't pray the prayer, then they're headed to hell, and God gets great glory for that. They have no chance to be saved at all. An Armenian, on the other hand, would say God loves everybody equally, but he's powerless to save everybody that he loves. How frustrating that must be for a father to have children to know that you're all-powerful, but you can't you can't be able to give them something that you would want them to have more than anything. He leaves the choice up to man. So basically man's will is the sovereign will of the universe. God will not override the will of man. That's what an Armenian would say. So he needs to live a life that is free from sin to retain salvation and to be pleasing to God. So here's how, let me give you one verse of scripture. Let me show you how a Calvinist would see it and an Armenian would see it. L Luke chapter 2. Chapter 19. This is just pulling one out. I could, I could go a, a lot of different places, but this, this one is kind of obvious. So let, let me show you this. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Here's what Jesus said. <clears throat> he said, for this, Jesus said this about himself. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. A Calvinist would look at that verse and say, well, that's very true, but it only applies to those that have been predestined. He only seeks and saves the lost that are predestined. Now, an Armenian would look at that verse and say, well, that's very true. He comes to seek and to save that which was lost if you accept him. So 
that, that verse is very true. He does, he does seek and he does save the lost, but the lost that he saves are the ones that accept him, the ones that receive him. Now think, think about this. Think about this. There's more than this, but let me just take it for round figures. There's six billion people on planet Earth, right? Six billion people in the world today, give or take some. Two billion people claim to be Christians. Now, a billion, a billion of the two billion that claim to be Christians are Catholics, which both the Calvinists and Armenians would say are not Christians. So that would leave us one billion people out of six billion people that would either fit the paradigm of Calvinism or Armenianism. And even within those groups, there are some that would look at one another and say, I don't, you know, the United Pentecostal would look at the Assemblies of God and say, I don't even think they're saved because they weren't baptized in Jesus' name only. And some of them think they're saved and they don't speak in tongues. But let's just say for there's ge generously by an Armenian and Calvinist standards, there's one billion people saved. Now think about that. God has then saved, according to those two groups of people, one billion out of six. That is a, that is a 167 batting average. You're not going to stay in the big leagues. You're not going to make the team with a 167 batting average. Surely, let me just reason with you. Come, let us reason. Surely, an omniscient, omnipotent, um, omnipresent creator of the universe has a better plan and a better batting average than 167, than one-sixth of the world's population. So what, what is this revelation of grace today? What is this revelation of grace that we're coming through, the finished work of the cross, the Father's unconditional love, mercy that knows no limits, that knows no end, that endures forever? What has it been, what has it been teaching us? What has it been revealing? Now, this is really cool. What's the Holy Spirit doing today? Now, follow me. He's taking the God of Calvinism, the God that is all-powerful, that is sovereign, whose will and choice will be done no matter what, and he's combining him now with the God of the Armenians that says, yes, God loves everybody equally. God loves all men without limit. And he's taking that and he's making a hybrid of those two. And that's the gospel that Paul teaches, the gospel of inclusion. That yes, God is sovereign, God is powerful, God's will will be done no matter what, no matter how many eons it takes, because here's the God of Armenia, because he loves all men equally. He is in truth the God and Father of all. So the predestination and the love that God invested in Jesus was for all men. There's one man that was predestined, that was Jesus. He was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world for all men. Not only for all men, let me just say it real, real frankly, as all men. So the verse that we read in, in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, where Jesus said that I've come to seek and to save that which is lost, the Calvinist would say that's only for the predestined. The Armenian would say that's only for those that accept him. The inclusionist would say Jesus was telling us the truth that he really did come to seek and to save that which was lost and he was fully successful in his mission because the work was dependent upon him and him alone, him solely and not us adding a work to it. He loves all sons equally. And the first begotten son he placed all men in before time began. So verses like, like 
Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. We can just take at face value that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We can take verses like 2 Corinthians 5.14 that if one died for all, then all died. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. We were crucified with Christ. It was a co-crucifixion. Romans chapter 6 verses 4 through 8 tells us that we, if we were crucified with him, we rose with him. And then Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 says not only were we crucified with Christ, rose with Christ, we, we, we ascended with Christ and we're seated today with Christ in heavenly places. That's Paul's gospel. That's the gospel of inclusion. It is the best of Calvinism and Arminianism. Both had a part of it right, but couldn't swallow the rest of it. They saw through a glass darkly. They were looking through lens that was fogged. So what does Paul do? He clears the glass. He wipes the fog off and shows us exactly the God that we serve. Here it is in a nutshell. Paul taught it to Timothy. And I'm, I'm, I'm winding down. I'm concluding here. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here it is in a nutshell. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. This is a faithful saying, Paul said, worthy of all acceptance. Are you ready for it? Here's the faithful saying that's worthy of everybody accepting it. Verse 10. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. He is the Savior of all men. Then he says, especially those who believe. Not exclusively, especially. Is there value in believing? Absolutely. Believing is an effortless response to revelation. Paul believed on the Damascus Road because Jesus revealed himself. When Jesus reveals himself of enough intensity and depth to satisfy you, you will believe. And that's when you then enter into all that he's provided. That's when you begin to enjoy the, the benefits of the kingdom, when you see it and enter into it. But that has no effect on him being your savior. He is your savior whether you believe it or not. Believing is important because it brings you into the consciousness of what you already possess because he has saved you. So the father through the son and the spirit has hold of you. And he ain't never going to let you go. Ever. These first two chapters that we're getting into, I mean, this is good stuff. This is, this is strong meat. And it's, it's based for you to believe and get a hold of. All right, Wednesday night we'll pick this up. We'll talk about this in a little bit more depth. Next Sunday morning we will pick it up in verse 11 and we'll go down through verse 21 if you want to meditate that. Look at it a little bit, read it out of several different versions. So next Sunday morning at the Digital Cathedral, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11, on down through verse uh, 21. God bless you. I hope you got something from this this morning. I love your messages. I love to communicate with you. I love Wednesday night. We get to interact a little bit. So you have a wonderful week and you be free in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday morning. We thank you for being with us today on the Digital Cathedral. We trust that today's teaching helped you in your journey to the abundant life Jesus has freely given to all. If you would like to help support us in spreading the gospel of grace, you can do so by going to donkeithley.com to make your donation. We thank you for your prayers and continued monthly support and look forward to seeing you again next week at the Digital Cathedral.